The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. In today's episode, I spoke with Richard about the protest movement in Israel that has emerged in response to the plans of the most right-wing Israeli government in history to dramatically curtail the power of the judiciary and further empower the executive. We discussed the makeup, social base and ideology of the parties in the coalition government, why the Israeli protest movement and liberal Israelis remain anchored to an ethno-nationalist politics in spite of their opposition to the government. And we also talked about the Palestinian Authority, increasingly a misnomer, as the PA's already minimal public support further erodes and as it starts to lose control of parts of the occupied West Bank. Richard Seymour is an editor at Salvage Journal and the author of many books including Unhitched, The Trial of Christopher Hitchens, The Liberal Defence of Murder, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics, and most recently, The Disenchanted Earth, Reflections on Eco-Socialism and Barbarism. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. As well as getting access to extended versions of my conversations with Richard, you'll also get extended versions of other PTO episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So we're going to be talking about the political crisis in Israel that was provoked by the Netanyahu government's plans to overhaul the Israeli judicial system in such a way that would dramatically curtail the judiciary's influence over lawmaking and public policy, and that would limit the Supreme Court's power to exercise judicial review, as well as granting the government control over judicial appointments. And of course, all of this is in the context of a political system where there were already very limited checks and balances. But before we talk about the judicial reform, it might be good to discuss the current coalition government, which came to power in November of last year, and which has widely been described as the most right-wing in Israeli history. And it's perhaps some measure of the radicalism of the coalition that such right-wing figures as Avigdor Lieberman and Naftali Bennett are not part of the government, but instead sit with the opposition. The Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, leads the right-wing Likud, uh, one of the traditional ruling parties since the 1970s, albeit one that's gone through its own process of radicalisation in recent years. But the two political figures and parties in the government that are considered most extreme are Itamar Ben-Gavir, leader of the Jewish Power Party and the Minister of National Security, and Basil El Smotrich of the Religious Zionist Party, who serves as the Minister of Finance. Let's perhaps take them in turn. So starting with Ben-Gavir and the, the Jewish Power Party, Could you say something on Gavir himself, uh, what kind of ideology his party espouses and who their social base is? Yeah, you're right. Um, Itamar Ben-Gavir is leader of Jewish power, Bezalel Smutrich, leader of the Religious Zionist Party. Both of these parties have voters that skew towards the poor for reasons that I'll come back to. Um, Both overtly far-right Jewish supremacists, Jewish power traces its roots to the ideology of Mir Kahan. Its leader, Ben-Gavir, openly admires Barrett Goldstein. 
the man who murdered 29 Palestinians in one of the early, I suppose we call it lone wolf attacks. Uh, ben Kavir is actually an interesting guy, because unlike Smotrich, I know we'll come to him, he was uh, not born in a settlement, uh, even though he lives in a settlement now, but in Jerusalem to Iraqi Jewish parents. They were migrants. There's a bit of a dark history there, by the way. If you've seen Abbas Shiplak's um, pretty authoritative history of Iraqi Jews, which is really a history of the exodus of Iraqi Jews, he tells us that um, their exodus to Israel was actually precipitated in part by a collusion between the Jewish agency, which was basically organizing uh, Jewish migration to uh, Israel, and before that to Palestine, and the pro-British Hashemite monarchy of Iraq, that ruled uh, until the Nationalist Revolution of 1958, um, basically by creating a panic, lots of anti-Semitic um, uh, panic, and uh, that allegedly include bombing campaigns uh, targeting Jews in Baghdad mm. in 1950-51. I mean, that claim is contested, but uh, Shiblak is a serious historian, um, and he brings uh, a lot of clout to this. Certainly Iraqi Jews blame their forced exodus on the Zionist movement, of which they actually had a very poor view. And there was clearly certainly a convergence of interest between the monarchy, which was very anti-Semitic and did want the Jews out, and the Jewish agency, which wanted Middle Eastern Jews to move to Israel. And so like the other Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews who arrived in Israel in the post-war years, they weren't treated very well when they got there. You know, they were initially put up in these filthy, unhygienic camps. They were used as a pool of cheap labor. You know, they were useful foot soldiers for wars. Um, so I don't know the specifics of when Ben Gavir's parents moved from Iraq to Israel, but I think it's a reasonable guess that they would have been among those who experienced the anti-Semitic terror in Iraq um, and their exploitation and mistreatment by the Israeli authorities and would maybe have been a bit sceptical of Zionism. And, and of the more kind of European Ashkenazi elite. Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that's a crucial part of the politics here, and we'll come to that. Um, uh, but... Um, well, Ben Gavir is one of these, I think, second-generation migrants who fully internalizes the values of the uh, system that he's brought up in, um, and uh, he decides um, he's, he's pretty far right as a as a teenager. Faced with the first intifada, he goes towards the most far right form of Zionism. He becomes a Kahanist, adhering to the Jewish supremacist doctrines of the um, you would call him a fascist of some kind, Mir Kahan. Uh, he's now a settler with offices in the Palestinian quarter of Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, which I think it will be a familiar name to many listeners because it's recently seen a lot of evictions from of Palestinians from their property, backed up by the IDF, of course. And his election slogan, he was referring to the sort of practice of terrorizing Palestinians and burning them out of their homes to force them to relinquish their lands, was Israel is the landowner around here. So that's Ben Gavir, you know, I mean, he's certainly very religious, and this comes from a religious fundamentalist background uh, as much as anything else, but it's the primacy of race and racism that defines his politics. And in terms of the Palestinians, the, the project of, of Ben Gavir and also uh, Smotrich, who, we, who we're going to come on to, is, or at least has been, Ben Gavir certainly has somewhat moderated his language, has been the annexation and the full ethnic cleansing of, of the West Bank. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's still the project, even if he has moderated his language. Because, of course, you know, electoral politics entails certain modifications of one's objectives for the short term. I think uh, he's quite knowing and quite cynical about this. And uh, Netanyahu is 
we will come to him as well, is a very capable rail politicker and probably required this of him. Just going back to Goldstein, you, you mentioned this extremist Israeli-American settler who, in 1994, as you say, carried out this murder of, of Palestinians in Hebron. Uh, it's, it's perhaps worth mentioning, just, just as an illustration of just what a strange and extreme character Ben Gavir is, that on his first date with his future wife, the venue was the grave of uh, Barack Goldstein. So, uh, yeah, pretty weird uh, figure. Um, if we turn, though, to Bezalel Smotrich, finance minister and leader of the Religious Zionist Party, can you talk about his political background and the party he leads and where they find their voting support? Well, uh, he is uh, has a, a, a more, I was going to say a more orthodox background, certainly in religious terms, that's true. Um, but his grandparents um, would have migrated from Ukraine. Uh, he claims that his surname uh, is actually from the Ukrainian uh, city of um, Smotrich. Um, and of course, anti-Semitism there was murderously genocidal. But he was born in an Israeli settlement, first of all in the Golan Heights, and then he grew up in an Orthodox Jewish settlement known as uh, Beit El in uh, the West Bank, which is one of these places that's very elevated, lots of natural resources. You can see Tel Aviv from there. His father was an Orthodox rabbi, which, uh, you know, you can uh, everybody can work this out, basically entails adherence to the most conservative interpretation of the Torah and of the Halakha, the body of Jewish law. And he now lives outside the Kedemim settlement uh, in the uh, northern West Bank, which was built by the fanatical settler movement Gush Eminim, the Block of the Faithful. And he's been responsible for a lot of anti-gay activism, um, including protesting gay pride. He responded to the recent pogrom in the West Bank town of Hawara by saying that Hawara should be wiped out by the Israeli military. So there are different threads of reaction here. But again, fanatically anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab racist, and rooted again in a grassroots paramilitarism, which is one of the characteristics of fascism. In the recent election, uh, he was obviously in coalition with Ben Gvir, and they got under just under 11% of the vote, uh, which you could compare to 23% for Likud. Given a fractured electoral system, that's quite a significant vote. I mean, I mentioned that it skews towards the poor, um, and again, we, we can come back to the reasons why that is, but they have a disproportionate amount of support from settlers in the West Bank. The thing is, the settlers themselves are quite a small population within Israel. They're like 5% of the total, so they couldn't make up much of an electoral base by themselves. But then, you know, they get a lot of support from people in Jerusalem, where there's been, obviously, a campaign to declare it the capital of Israel, drive Palestinians out of their homes, annex East Jerusalem. They get a lot of support from rank-and-file IDF soldiers who represent uh, maybe a fifth of the coalition's vote. Then there's the young Haredi, um, the ultra-Orthodox Jews who are abandoning the traditional Orthodox parties. And they like Ben Gavir very much, more than Smotrich even. They've been very impressed by his racist theatrics. They've supported him increasingly over the last four elections. You mentioned uh, Smotrich is a finance minister. Ben Gavir is the national security minister. That means together they have authority over the West Bank, and that was a condition. Of, that was a you know condition of coalition, and their policy of total Israeli domination from the river to the sea, characterized by military rule, legal apartheid, you know, expanding colonization, ultimately tending towards the transfer to uh, her in um, Hebrew, realistically meaning expulsion of the Palestinian population, becomes highly significant, even if it's not something they could begin to achieve right away. They certainly have more material resources behind that, 
and more political support behind that than they have ever before. And do you see any major differences in the ideology and support base of, of Gavir and, and Smotrich? They look fairly similar. The difference being, I think, that Smotrich is more focused on, let's say, orthodox uh, religious disposition. But really, uh, you know, they're both from uh, an orthodox background and uh, they both have very similar politics. I, I guess that Smotrich has not been traditionally associated with the Kahanist uh, faction. But his politics are pretty eliminationist in the same way. So, I mean, th there are nuances, um, and there are nuances of personal background, but I think the similarities are far greater. The other major party in the coalition, uh, aside from Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud, is Shas, the ultra-Orthodox Haredi group whose presence in the government has attracted much less comment since the party has been in ruling coalitions in Israel, both uh, governments of the left and the right, since the 1980s. Could you say something about Shas and, and what distinguishes their sort of religious piety from both Jewish power and the, and the religious Zionist party? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a Haredi party, uh, which um, uh, is largely based in Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews by Haredi. I, you know, you can imagine it's uh, essentially quite socially conservative. But its its differences are, well, first of all, the emphasis on Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews, and in producing what they see as an authentically non-European Jewish culture, a Middle Eastern Jewish culture. Also, in the fact that they have roots in the Moshevim, the Moshev are similar to the kibbutz, um, like agrarian workers' cooperatives and things like that, that were built, first of all, from the Second Aliyah, which was a wave of Jewish migration to Palestine that took place before the First World War. So you have this odd combination of political and social conservatism, virulent homophobia and racism, um, and sometimes moderate economic reformism. Beyond the sort of strange political mixture, one gets a sense of a lot of opportunism and certainly corruption. The leader of Shas, Arya Deri, has done jail time for taking bribes. So he possibly understands Netanyahu very well on that level. It was also recommended back in 2018 that he should be indicted for tax evasion, money laundering and fraud. The Attorney General, Abichai Mandelblit, decided in uh, 2021 when Mandelblit was serving in the Netanyahu administration alongside Derry, to drop most of the charges. So I really think that just reflects the kingmaker role that Shah's historically has liked to hold, because they've joined most governing coalitions, with a few exceptions. One exception is partly due to its opposition to right-wing economic ideology, but also more because of their opposition to forced conscription of Haredi men in the military, they did join the Labour-led opposition back in 2013 and opposed Netanyahu. It's also fair to say they've moved to the right over the years in a number of ways. I mean, it's always been pungently anti-Arab in its ideology, you know. One of the founders, um, who's kind of like a spiritual leader of Vidya Joseph, called the Arabs vipers, said that the is Israel should wipe them out, said God should strike the Palestinians with a plague. More generally racist, wailing about African migrants infiltrating Israel. But it wasn't previously part of the annexationist right. It was mildly critical of the settler movement at times, and it let the Oslo Accords go through, not by supporting them, but by abstaining, thus, you know, not acting as an impediment. It's currently in support of the annexationist project, and it's not clear even how much that reflects a shift in principle. There has historically been the idea in the Israeli press that Shaz was divided between a left faction under Arya Deri 
and a right faction under Eli Yishai. Um, but Yishai left in 2014 to form his own party, which never exceeded the electoral threshold for representation. Derry leads now, and I suspect that for him the issue is just who is going to protect him from doing more jail time? With whom will he make the most money? What kinds of coalitions um, can he form that are viable in the long run? Certainly there's no chance of forming a coalition with Labour these days, because Labour is almost dead. And the the centre parties don't offer them very much. So this is a logical uh, place for them to be. It wasn't actually so long ago that Netanyahu would refuse to be seen on a platform with figures such as, as Ben Gavir because of their very extreme and, and open espousal of, of a politics of ethnic cleansing. What changed? Is, is it simply that there was no other way for Netanyahu to return to power than, than with support of parties like Jewish Power and the Religious Zionist Party? And how much does it have to do, in your opinion, with Netanyahu being under investigation for corruption, which provides an obvious incentive for him to collaborate in a project of undermining the, the judiciary? Yeah, that I, I think that there are historical dimensions to this, obviously. The fact is that in the past, he would have been in coalition with people like, uh, you mentioned Avigdor Lieberman and Naftali Bennett, and we would have considered those extremely right-wing politicians, uh, you know, espousing occasionally eliminationist-sounding rhetoric with regard to the Palestinians. And I think what's happened is that the coalitions have become progressively more right-wing, um, and that this is part of the historical dynamic of Israel, um, that this is just what there is uh, to work with if you want to lead a, a sort of traditionally centre-right government, um, which in Israeli terms is very right-wing indeed. But I think also we have to understand that for Netanyahu, an attack on him is an attack on Israel. His whole political style has always been limbed with this immense self-righteous paranoia, as with leaders like Trump and Orban and Bolsonaro and others of that kind. Everything is construed through the prism of rivalry, aggression, ego competition, and so on. And so I think even the term corruption doesn't quite capture the ensuing way that leaders like this, and particularly Netanyahu, behave. Because corruption, you know, I think of someone like Arya Derry, who is obviously vacuously on the take, truckling to the current balance of power, and not with any real politics, apart from broadly being on the, on the right. You really can't say that of Netanyahu. I mean, his corruption is methodical and politically disciplined. So you take these allegations that he tried to buy favourable coverage from Yediot Aronot. This is the the Israeli newspaper. That's right, um, and a very important critical newspaper. Um, uh, but he he tried to buy favourable coverage effectively by saying, "I'll reduce the circulation of of a rival paper." Well, from his early days as Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, he has really been convinced that the media is waging a war on Israel's legitimate interests, and he made it a priority to win on that terrain. So he's been building up uh, personal relationships with, sure, right-wing journalists and editors and whatnot, but media owners are far more important. One of his closest friends was uh, Sheldon Adelson, uh, owner of the Israel Hayom tabloid. Adelson, of course, be very familiar to many listeners because uh, he was one of Trump's biggest donors. But um, I think people like this don't regard what they do as corruption. I think they see everyone else who criticizes them as corrupt, and they're just doing what is necessary for virtue to prevail. And for Netanyahu, I mean, I don't want to overstate this, I think there's a certain cheerful amorality there as well, and a certain glee in uh, dominating one's rivals. But certainly for Netanyahu, 
his sort of moral um, self-righteousness means that he's willing to subvert the traditional pieties of the Israeli right to get what he wants. The deference to the IDF, for example, um, in Israeli society, he can contemptuously throw that aside if he decides that IDF soldiers who criticize him or his policies are traitors. He's had no compunction about openly embracing anti-Semitic movements and leaders. And he, like, I know that Zionism has a long and complicated relationship to various anti-Semitic currents, especially the Christian right in the United States, but not only. But Netanyahu has been particularly shameless. Um, and yeah, of course, he's more than happy to attack the so-called rule of law to protect himself. Um, and also to advance the wider goals of the right and to weaken the forces of what he would consider to be uh, anti-Israel treachery. But I don't think he would see a distinction between opportunism and principle as most people observing uh, would. And you, you remember when he was elected, he said he was making the settlements his top priority, right? Um, so you could see that as his bid for um, the coalition that he currently has, because he wouldn't have the far right involved otherwise. He could have tried to form a coalition with the Blue and White Party and uh, with Lapid's uh, middle-of-the-road party, whose name eludes me for the moment. Uh, he could have gone that, in that direction, but I think, I think he understood something. First of all, I think that this is just where the historical uh, dynamic is taking him, but most Israelis don't support the judicial reforms that he wants. That's what the polls consistently show. But about half of Israelis support the formal annexation of the West Bank areas that have already been colonized, and only 30% are against. So, you know, even in terms of the so-called two-state, one-state stuff, a plurality of Israelis back, or would seem to back, one Jewish-dominated state throughout at least the majority of historic Palestine, and it's important to note that the Israeli capitalist establishment, you know, and multinational capital that opposes the judicial reform bill is up to its neck in the settlements. I mean, among the 112 firms charged by the UN with assisting the settlements, um, including by construction, finance, maintaining, expansion, demolition of Palestinian properties too, um, it's not just a raft of Israeli firms. But, you know, Airbnb, JCB, TripAdvisor, Motorola, firms that many of us will have uh, at some point bought something from. So, the, you know, the, there's, there's a sense in which this breaks through the coalition. That if it can be leveraged, if it can get some real energy behind it, prioritizing the settlements, expanding them, annexing them, uh, it breaks through the dynamic of uh, liberal civil society opposition. So, the strong support that exists within Israel for destroying the fabric of any potential Palestinian statehood and basically imposing de jure undemocratic Israeli Jewish rule on the Palestinians is the pivot for this wider offensive on liberal rights that uh, Israeli Jews have hitherto enjoyed. Going back to Avigdor Lieberman. Would it be fair to say that, as well as marginal differences in in their position on the Palestinians, that also a, a major reason why Lieberman finds himself in opposition is that, for all his hatred of the Palestinians, he doesn't share the extreme sort of religiosity of Ben Gavir and Smotrich? Maybe. I mean, he's certainly of the secular nationalist right, but does that, it's not clear to me that uh, he, ha he is unwilling 
uh, to work with um, the religious far right. Uh, so that that is something that um, I would need to I would need to see some evidence of some print, point of principle on that matter. Uh, there may be other reasons why uh, he has not found his way into this coalition and is sitting it out. I mean, certainly on on social issues, certain social issues, Lieberman. Uh, has been in a very narrow way liberal like for example lgbt rights he doesn't have a problem with so that maybe he has some objection to that but i sense possibly uh netanyahu just didn't choose to form that type of coalition you know that uh, what he wanted was the specific coalition that he actually got and that necessitated pivoting to the right on social questions if we could turn briefly to the opposition parties, it's a pretty diffuse and, and motley collection of political tendencies. But but who are the sort of the social and economic forces they broadly represent? Um, because obviously their supporters very much make up the people out on the streets opposing the judicial reform. Yeah, well, I, I think we can best uh, sort of describe that by setting up some contrasts here. Um, because it, it's, it's quite notable that, you know, the poorer voters in Israel skew pretty strongly to the right. They're overrepresented in the voting base for Shah's. Same is true of United Torah Judaism, which is again based in conservative Haredi Judaism. About 46% of Likud voters have below average incomes compared to 29% with above average incomes. Blue and White Party, which is Benny Gantz's centre-right party and is basically the political wing of the old IDF establishment, um, to put it crudely, has exactly the reverse pattern. Yesha Tid, which is the centrist party led by Lapid, uh, I think is often characterised as centre-left. I think it's basically just centre. It's dominated by voters with above average incomes. And I think this is because class voting in Israel has just almost completely collapsed and it's been taken over by religious and communalist voting. I'm not saying that class doesn't uh, inform and inflect the voting, but it inflects it in ways that are mediated through ethnicity and um, religious claims. So the more secular the voters, the more they cleave to the centre, centre-left, while the religious voters, certainly those representing the poorer and more exploited Jewish communities in Israel, such as uh, the Sephardic Jews, vote for the right and the far right. And you couldn't, I think, get a clear example of Du Bois' social and psychological wage in action, which includes, in this case, not just better wages than Arabs, um, and more social respect and civil rights, but also, frankly, the entitlement, effective in law, if not de jure, to occasional recreational politically motivated violence against Arabs. And so you see its effects. Ethnically, the Ashkenazi vote mainly goes to the liberal middle-of-the-road, center-left or secular-right, with the singular exception of the United Torah Judaism, whose votes, voters are overwhelmingly Ashkenazi. Sephardi vote goes to religious um, or hardline nationalist parties. Obviously, the so-called uh, Israeli-Arab vote, uh, the Palestinian vote in Israel, uh, overwhelmingly goes uh, to left of center or Arab parties. And there's a gender axis here, as you'd expect, given the patriarchal thrust of the right. So the religious Zionist party um, is strongly male uh, in its electorate, as is Yisrael Betino, um, which, if I'm not mistaken, is Zabagdor Lieberman's party. Um, and then there's sort of the way in which um, certain demographic determinations clearly exhibit... Um, 
a determination by class. So, like, if you live in a big city like Tel Aviv, overwhelmingly you're going to back one of the central parties. If you live in one of the kibbutzes, which are supposedly socialist communes, you vote strongly against the right. So it's an incredibly fractured scene um, in which the right has taken power with a plurality, but not a majority, um, a coalition which basically includes a chunk of the middle class, some capitalist outliers, but really a lot of very poor or relatively poor religious Jewish voters. So it's crucial to stress how volatile Israeli politics has been in recent years. You know, there's been, uh, if you look at it, a new legislative election in every year since 2019, and there were two in that year. And as in so many decaying electoral democracies, and Israel's at best an ethnically exclusive democracy, at worst a military state with a very thin democratic veneer, the parties that have dominated for decades have been in sharp decline. Obviously, Labour far more precipitously so, in as much as it scarcely exists on the national level anymore. But that, uh, that collapse on the part of Labour really bespeaks a fundamental transformation of the Israeli electorate, and it's worth describing the arc briefly of its rise and fall, because in the decades after the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of 700,000 Palestinians through which the Israeli state was founded in 1948, Labour Zionism was utterly dominant, because it was predicated, you know, this was, um, uh, you know, the um, Jewish issue of the, 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 uh, was um, overwhelmingly dominated by people who in uh, in the European countries that they largely came from would have been socialists, or social democrats at least, um, and sometimes Marxists of various kinds. So, you know, they created a, an exclusionary corporatist pact between state, capital, and labor. Each of those sectors defined as Jewish, um, although Palestinians were increasingly brought into the lowest ranks of the economy after the end of uh, martial law for the Palestinian minority in 1966. So, you know, the state was dominated by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, which had emerged, of course, out of the paramilitaries that destroyed the Palestinians, and it was very close to Labour. And in every election between 1949 and 1977, Labour, sometimes with coalition partners, won. And not surprisingly, you know, this was generally seen as a left-wing country although it was founded on ethnic cleansing and exclusion. And also at that time, Israel was less clearly in the American camp, although obviously, you know, that starts to change after the Six-Day War, but, but there was a degree of uh, oscillation there. Subsequently, it becomes clearly a client state of the United States. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, there, there was, it was unclear at that point that uh, the British Foreign Office liked Israel very much, or, you know, there was quite a lot of sort of uh, lingering anti-Semitism about um, uh, Israel in the um, United States establishment. I'm not saying that they had a particularly thought-through objection to Zionism. It was basically uh, upper-crust anti-Semitism a lot of the time, um, and also just generally indifference. Then, of course, Israel, which had sort of been supported by the USSR and had had close relationships with the USSR, absolutely destroyed the Arab armies in the Six-Day War in 1967, they inflicted this world historic defeat on Arab nationalism, seriously weakened the nascent Palestinian leadership, which was then, you know, utterly dependent on its relationship to the Arab nationalist leaders. So this utterly amped up Israeli chauvinism and racism. And then Israel captured the West Bank from Jordan, Gaza from Egypt, the Golan Heights from Syria. And this basically seemed to fulfill the expectations of the greater Israel nationalists and created this territorial base for a religious settler colonial movement that really began with gusto in the early 70s. 
And so instead of kibbutzes, you had these millenarian settlements. And third, like every other capitalist economy, uh, Israel responded to the global economic crisis by pivoting to this kind of neoliberal political economy so that the class basis for labor voting changed dramatically. And so by the 90s, like everywhere else, labor's become third-way party, primarily distinguished from Netanyahu's Likud by the degree to which it pursued the Oslo peace process. And then there was this new generation coming up, not really formed by this vaguely left-leaning pro-Soviet politics of the post-war era, but by the war in Lebanon, uh, the Sabra and Shatila massacre of 1982, led by Ariel Sharon, the first intifada, the rapid expansion of the settlements, privatized political economy. And then if you look, I mean, the last hurrah for labor, it's the Ehud Barak-led labor coalition government elected in 1999, uh, staking its legitimacy on the idea of basically imposing a negotiated defeat on the Palestinians uh, in the form of the famous Bantustan solution. And then you've just seen a series of right-wing governments led by Ariel Sharon and Netanyahu again, centrist parties like Kadima occasionally holding office but basically pursuing similar policies, ruling the West Bank through the institutions built up during Oslo, direct military occupation plus alliance with the Palestinian Authority. I know we're going to talk about them. Um, and so, uh, you know, you have generations formed by decades of mounting racist fervor, repeated wars in Lebanon, the West Bank and Gaza, mainstreaming of outright genocidal anti-Palestinian sentiments. And this brutal real politic, which, I mean, the I, I will probably have cause to talk about the lacrimose hypocrisy of labor Zionism, the doctrine of shoot and cry, you know, um, but uh, it's now just brutal rail politic, and that's under the prolonged dominance of Likud. And then I think also the fact that they felt so internationally isolated, uh, despite all their powerful diplomatic and financial support. And so you've got the detectable rise in global anti-Semitic sentiment. All of this together is fueling a messianic dimension of Zionism, which has always been there. And the political system is fragmenting, the old parties are losing legitimacy, uh, just like in every other capitalist democracy, but it has a particular inflection here. And so younger Israelis, according to the polls, are the ones who are really gravitating towards the far right. And that's why you've got these trends. And I think Ben Gavir and Smotrich really represent a long-term organic development within Israeli society, even if they're a minority for the moment. Going back to the judicial overhaul itself, can you explain the significance of what's being proposed, uh, why the ruling government has such hostility towards the uh, Israeli judiciary, and also why the proposals have sparked such vehement opposition amongst liberal Israelis, the left, and, and even parts of the Israeli right? Yeah, it's, it, this is complicated, this, because on the one hand, it's, it is basically a war on establishment liberalism, and particularly on, you know, standard idea of um, institutions, rules of law, checks and balances that are so integral to liberal statecraft. So you mentioned the features earlier, the Judicial Reform Bill gives the Nesset the power to override the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court rules its laws are unconstitutional. It would also limit the ability of the courts to have a judicial review of the basic laws, which is essentially the Constitution. It would allow the Nesset to choose most of the people on the Judicial Select Committee. So this is a pattern of colonization of the state by the right um, that we've seen before in, in Hungary and India, for example. And I think that's the model here. And these would-be populist, nationalist populists with their electoral pluralities claim to represent the true sovereign subject, the people. As against various traitors and anti-nationals, and they argue the courts have too much power, uh, are essentially using it undemocratically on behalf of alien minorities and troublemakers. 
Um, in this case, the other happens to be the Palestinians, as well as Israeli human rights NGOs, liberal lawyers. Actually, it's worth pointing out that a lot of this politics is based on anti-Soros uh, stuff, which, you know, uh, if you didn't know anything about Israel, you'd be very surprised by, because that's basically an anti-Semitic meme. But that's basically Netanyahu's politics, and he's been uh, leveraging that stuff for years. Settler movement um, blames the Israeli courts for restraining their expansion. That's not completely without foundation in as much as the Israeli courts um, sometimes try and restrain them uh, in being too impetuous and expanding too quickly or try and limit some of the damage from what they do. Mm. There, there was a ruling against the use of physical torture as well at some point, I believe. Yeah, I, and but the, but there's also you know uh, various other constituencies who hate the power of the courts. I mean, sure we can mention you know the uh, Netanyahu and Derry you know, who have corrupt reasons, but uh, it's also important to say that Orthodox Israeli Jews um, have historically been exempt from military service, and that has recently been deemed unconstitutional by the courts. And so there's a, a big conflict there. And that exemption is, is massively resented by secular Israelis, right? Of course, yeah, right. So this is one of the ways in which culture war, um, uh, which is is not this, uh, how can I put it, it's not this febrile thing that just happens on the social industry, but is really um, embedded in the fundamental processes of Israeli capitalism. It's one of the ways in which it feeds into this. As for the opposition, there's, there's something very Schmittian about this setup. Because for the liberals, I think constitutions are holy. I mean, you get this a lot in the United States, but you get it everywhere, really. Um, because constitutions are what constitute the people as a governable entity and a secure, uh, you know, they, they, they secure social peace. It's essentially a constitution is a people making a gift of itself to itself. That's the idea. Whereas for the Schmittians, you know, constitutional liberalism presupposes a people whose sovereignty it then dilutes with all these ephemeral mechanisms of parliamentary horse trading and transient electoral majorities and so on. So that it's anti-politics. It reduces everything to the so-called care of Dasein. Um, you know, looking after people, um, their health and, and security and so on. Um, and therefore it's fit only for rare periods of sunny weather when there's no real political antagonism. But the truly popular sovereignty from this point of view is plebiscitary, and it consists in a fusion of the people with a leader who has obviously named the enemy and decided the exception. And it's worth asking, you know, when did all this fascist political theology start to come back again? You know, uh, in this country they'd say it was Brexit. I mean, I really think, I mean... That's utterly ahistorical, but I think uh, on a global level, it was the Bush administration's war on terror, the black sites, the torture memos, extraordinary renditions, Department of Homeland Security, all of the openly Schmittian justifications for reformatting the state around the exception and the decider. Anyway, about the opposition, the centrist Israelis who are up in arms about this, as far as I can tell, they are basically who would traditionally have been the establishment, although increasingly they're not. It suits the Israeli right to call them leftists, you know, basically the left is trying to succeed in the courts where they failed electorally, that's the argument. But it's basically a standard liberal, liberal civil society movement, carefully avoiding the politics of the issue while parading support from high-tech industry, bankers, lawyers, former generals, former attorney generals and ministers. 
there's a Haaretz journalist, uh, David Rosenberg, who's very good, and um, he's written a piece for Foreign Policy, which basically points out that the opposition's been really content with all manner of corrosively anti-democratic and constitutionally illiberal measures when applied to the West Bank and Gaza. They had no problem with the settlements and the occupation, and of course the concomitant military hypertrophying in Israel society, until their own power was challenged. Yes, and, and this includes the military, right? We've seen elements of the military say that they would refuse to continue serving while the judicial process is is ongoing. And obviously, you know, if, you know we haven't seen that sort of talk uh, regarding you know massive violence against Gaza and and uh, and Palestinians elsewhere. Yeah, and uh, from what I understand, the proposal to uh, to allow Ben Gavir to set up basically what amount to militias to police protest and outbursts from dissenting Palestinians behind the Green Line um, is uh, producing a lot of concern, uh, to put it mildly, from Shin Bet, who, you know, they're not opposed to terrorizing Palestinians, uh, but they are worried about their own power being lost here. So, I mean, you know, there is an incipient fascist potential here, as there is in India, Brazil, Hungary, United States, Philippines, but they have helped to create this beast um, I'm always very fond of that passage in Aimé Césaire's um, Discourse on Colonialism, where he describes the dialectic of the barbarism being built up uh, overseas in the tortured bodies of the colonized, um, before it engulfs the colonizers in the reddened waters. It oozes, seeps, and trickles from every crack. It's a, a, a classic example of that, uh, that dynamic. You've already mentioned that comparisons are being made between Israel and so-called illiberal democracies such as Hungary and, and Poland. And although obviously there's, a, there's an element of truth to that, do you think it's the parallel that the left should be cautious of, of embracing? And it, and it certainly has been embraced by liberals because um, there's a sort of implicit description there of Israel as a liberal democracy if it's on this path towards the Hungarian model and, and suggesting that you know there's a close parallel between Israel and, and liberal democratic states. But of course, as, as you've described Israel it's a you know it's an exclusionary democracy which is not democratic even with, within the green line within so-called Israel proper yeah i mean i can see where that's coming from um and certainly when you have people like isaac herzog uh, who was um i think uh, uh, he was a, a labor politician who was i mean this is very hypocritical um uh, you know, he he would say that there is a creeping fascism in Israel, but at the same time, he would be profoundly anti-Palestinian, would support almost every measure against the Palestinians, and has been absolutely insistent that Jewish democracy me- means what it says on the tin. It means outright domination by a Jewish demographic majority. I think my favourite example of this this sort of character is, is possibly Amos Oz, who's routinely described in media as a, as a peace activist and has supported more or less every military attack on the Palestinians that you care to you know, mention. What's interesting is that actually the, the, this is also coming, it's not just from, you know, Herzog and um, sort of liberal Israeli commentary, but actually it came from uh, parts of the IDF establishment. There was, uh, I think this guy called Major General Yer Golan, uh, who was the chief of staff of the Israel Defense Forces, and he compared Israel's political climate to that of Europe in the 1930s. Is there an element of hypocrisy in this? Yeah. Um, 
is there a sense in which uh, the, these, this language is being used cynically? Uh, up to a point, yeah, because they would scream bloody murder if anybody else used it, anybody outside of Israel. But I think the concern is real. I think it's, it's, look, the fact is there is a difference between an exclusionary democracy, right? One, uh, in, in which essentially you've got patterns of segregation. Like no one, uh, would have said post-war United States was, uh, you know, before the overthrow of segregation was fascist per se. It was a democratic, it was a capitalist democracy with exclusionary um, uh, aspects to it, which were not that uncommon. Israel's sort of patterns of segregation are a bit more unusual in today's world, but they certainly weren't when the state was founded in 1948. I mean, because that was the same year in which apartheid was uh, congealed out of uh, South African segregation. So, so my, my point would be that the fact that Israel is not what would be considered a normal capitalist democracy today, although it was somewhat when it was founded, doesn't mean that it isn't propelling itself towards something even worse. Um, something that is, I think the language of, uh, incipient fascism or what, uh, Herzog called fascization has some purchase here. Um, and the, the crucial thing is the way in which, um, it's not just this, the sort of violence of the state, you know, it, it's the, um, armed mobilization of, uh, popular masses. Um, you know, the pogrom in Hawara is an example of this, the violence in Sheikh Jarrah, the violence during the, um, general strike and, uh, Palestinian uprising in May 2021. To me, it screams of, uh, something like, you know, the early stages of fascism. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you'd like to hear the extended 70-minute version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.